0: The Rathbones Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. Hello, I'm Andrea Catherwood, and welcome to the latest episode of the Rathbones Look Forward series. I'm talking to some of the great thinkers, journalists, and writers of our time, focusing on the future of our changing world. And today we're taking a look at the future of genetics and race with the geneticist, author and broadcaster Adam Rutherford. His latest book, How to Argue with a Racist, is a timely weapon against the misuse of science to justify bigotry. Adam, welcome. Great to have you here. I know that you're not actually a race historian, you are a geneticist, but you've obviously been having a good look at how racist attitudes have changed over the last 30 years. And it's interesting, because in some ways, perhaps we're more fixated by race than ever. We talk about it an awful lot. And yet, tell us a bit about what the British Attitude Survey tells us about whether or not we're becoming a more tolerant society.
1: Yeah, really hard to assess is the mm. answer. Because even in surveys, people don't voluntarily... <laughs> well, yeah, they don't. people don't like saying things that they're... Even if, even if it's anonymous, they tend not to uh, reveal things which are deemed to be culturally... Uh, inappropriate or, or um, insensitive. So what those types of surveys in the British Attitude Survey does it best, does, is they ask proxy questions such as, would you feel comfortable if your son or daughter was in a relationship with? And the, the first time the British Attitude Survey did that was in 1983. And the question was, would, would you be happy if your son and daughter was married to a black or Asian minority ethnic person? And at that time, around about half of the respondents said they wouldn't. Right. Mm-hmm. When that same question is asked in 2017, the numbers dropped to below a fifth, so less than 20 mm-hmm. percent. So by that simple metric, you could legitimately say, well, we are now in a more tolerant society than we were in 1983. However, These types of bigotries sort of just shift with the moving times. They don't seem to vanish. And so only in 2017 was the first time that the question was asked that included Muslims in that. And the answer was 50% of people would feel uncomfortable if their son or daughter was married to a Muslim. So we've just got a different branch of bigotry. Is, Is that progress? i don 't know it 's very difficult to say, are we a more tolerant society than we were thirty years ago? I think probably the answer is yes now you talk in your book about about the history of race
0: and how it 's rooted in those attempts by European scientists in the uh, in the eighteenth century to try and classify the people of the world and obviously we 've held on to some of those racist assumptions that we began with. Tell us in particular about Carl Linnaeus. Perhaps he was the, the most highly influential scientist at the, at the heart of it all. What was his impact?
1: Yeah, well, Linnaeus' impact, his, his scientific legacy cannot be uh, overstated. He is one of the most influential thinkers in biology. Um, he, he came up with a taxonomy, the classification system that we still use today. Right. So um, it's the binomial system where you have a genus and a species. We are Homo sapiens. That is how we classify all living things today. And Linnaeus invented that at the end of the 18th century. Now, this is at a time of the, the cultural context for this is this is the beginning of the age of empires, the age of of plunder, of an exploitation, of colonialization, where European countries are spreading out over the world and meeting new people and subjugating them. Um, and what we see at this time is not just Linnaeus, but Linnaeus is a key part of this. Philosophers, sort of proto-scientists, because we're in the early days of science then, um, trying to apply taxonomy, classification, to the humans that people are encountering in their um, exploration of of the rest of the world. And in doing so, they're trying to apply sort of scientific, what we now think are pseudoscientific, uh, categorizations to these people. Now, Linnaeus does it in four or five ways, depending on which book you look at. And in all versions, Linnaeus, Kant, Voltaire, Blumenbach, and a whole list of other European scientists, they all come up with four, five, six. Some of them up to sixty-three, but they're all hierarchical, right? They they are. They're not just a description of how people look to them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They are ranked and see if you can guess who comes top of, top of that hierarchy in every single one of those classifications well, them right it's white <laughs> it's europeans white, yeah. and so linnaeus himself describes so the primary the primary categorizer is pigmentation skin color right and linnaeus comes up with four or five types of humans subspecies of humans he calls them and they are european um african uh, east asian uh north american and with them come a color scheme which is black, yellow, red, and white, and with that, and this is where it becomes really interesting in an awful way, he also associates behavioral characteristics, so East Asians are ruled by customs and are organized but unoriginal. Uh, the North Americans are ruled by caprice and uh, and you know have, have other characteristics. Africans are lazy, palvering, and um, capricious as well. And Europeans are graceful, ruled by laws, and and all sorts of nice things like that. And so w- all of these attempts to scientifically categorize, it's not really science that's happening. What it is, it's political ideology marshalling science or co-opting science in order to normalize the subjugation of other people.
0: It feels really uncomfortable today, even to be having that conversation. And yet I wonder how much, how can we put contemporary morality onto these historic figures? I mean, should we understand
1: where they came from or do we just call this out as racism? You do both. I think it's really important that we have to be both historically respectful of what is a key cornerstone of understanding history which is not to judge people by contemporary standards mm. but at the same time you can be absolutely factual by saying Linnaeus was a racist Voltaire that great hero of the enlightenment thought that african people were a different species yeah. to europeans now regardless of the mora- morality of that which is pretty low that that is a racist sentiment by by any standards so i think it is okay to be non-judgmental in describing these people as racists they are effectively all white supremacists but that has a different connotation in the 21st century than it did in the 17th century they were racists. Were they trying to justify
0: colonialism and empire? I mean you know I think back to um, the the horrific treatment of Sarah Bartman, who was known as the, the hot and top Venus, this poor woman who was brought to, to Europe and, and essentially shown off as a fairground attraction, really. These pseudoscientists were really trying to find a link, in a way, between men and animals?
1: Some of them were. Um, so uh, Vol- Voltaire is a good example of that. that uh, trying to understand the genesis of humans, the, uh, the migration of humans around the world. There's two competing schools of thought and remember that everyone is a biblical creationist at, that, at this time. Yeah. Evolution is an idea which is in the air, but won't be formalized until the middle of the 19th century with, with Darwin. But you've got these two competing schools of thought, which are the polygenists and the monogenists. And the polygenists believe that humans spread from Adam and Eve and landed in various places around the world and then evolved in those locations. And so Voltaire thinks that Africans are a different species to Europeans because that's where they evolved. The monogenists believed, which is what Kant was and Linnaeus was as well, believed that everyone migrated around from Adam and Eve and they're they're changing en route to the versions that we see today. Now, these were the fierce debates of the 17th, 18th and 19th century. They're, They're all wrong in in many senses, almost all of them, there are some interesting parallels with what we now know, which I think is is worth addressing, because we, from genetics and from paleontology, paleoanthropology, the study of human evolution, we're now very certain that there are elements of truth to the monogenist story. We are Homo sapiens, we are an African species. So Homo sapiens evolved in Africa, probably all over Africa, in the last half a million years. And most people stayed in Africa until about 70,000 years ago when a small group migrated out. And it is from that small group that, that spread around the rest of the world. Now, that's a very simplistic, broad-brush version of the story of us. What we also know, know is that there's migration in all directions at all time. But one of the key reasons we know this is because when we look at diversity within Africa – it is much higher than in the rest of the world put together, oh. in any way we measure it. So, there's more genetic diversity between two Africans from anywhere on that continent than with, between an African and someone from. So, for Scotland.
0: example, somebody from Scotland and some and uh, an Aboriginal from some from Australia. Are you saying that there is more that, that they are closer? They are more terms closely
1: of, related. Wow. Genetically. Um, in terms of biological diversity than a man from Uganda and a man from Ethiopia, right? right? These are sort of unequivocal, mm-hmm. uncontroversial things to say within genetics. But this is this is sort of like, it's partly evolution's deception because we say, we talk about black people.
0: Yeah, we're still really fixated by skin color. We I'm are. i going to come back to that. All
1: yeah. of that is derived from, derived from mm. people like Linnaeus in mm. the 17th century. We've never managed to shake that. But if you, talk, if you say, if I say to you... Um, the cameraman's a black guy. You know that's you know roughly what I'm talking about. Yes. But actually what I mean by that is there's a man who is one of one point three billion who's descended from one of one point three billion people mm-hmm. who have greater diversity genetically and in terms of skin colour yeah. than in the rest of the world. What that says is that race is a social uh, classifier a social construct is how we talk about it it is not biologically meaningful to describe someone as black or east asian or 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 even african-american mm. so so then how
0: do we define race today should we even be trying to define it i know that there are scientists out there and, and voices outside science who when they talk about racism they say Look, race doesn't exist you know um race is just a social construct is that the case is there an argument for just ignoring the fact that race you know you've just explained to me very clearly why what we can what we think of as race doesn't really exist in terms of biodiversity. So, should we give up on the whole idea of having different races?
1: It's a really good question, and and, and you, you, you said were,
0: it was a very messy question because no, I honestly no, no. don't even know. What, I don't even know where to begin with the
1: it. These are hard conversations mm. to have, and I think that you, you hit the you hit one of my key buttons in in the question, which was when we, I think, two of the pitfalls that often well intentioned people fall into, including scientists, my my brethren. Uh, when we say race doesn't exist, this is not correct. Race does exist. And the second part to that is when we say race is just a social construct, right? Humans interact by social constructs, right? We interact biologically with almost no people um, unless we're in a sexual relationship with them. Time is a social construct. Money is a social construct. Uh, So when we say race is just a social construct it is the primary way by which humans interact with each other race does exist because it is a social construct i think it's important that we recognize that people are different and that those differences are coordinated by how people self-define a lot of which is to do with geography some of which is to do with ancestry some of which may be to do to do with um things like pigmentation but but as we as we look at genetics it's it's hard to make those claims what we can say confidently as scientists is that race does not correspond with the traditional or contemporary colloquial uses of race that people do actually understand and that's that's kind of you know that's evolution's deception it's just hard for us to shake that kind of stuff you use a very stark example in the book about the
0: pseudoscience from centuries ago that led to the genocide in Rwanda in the uh, mid 1990s with the Hutu and, and the Tutsi tribes can you just explain a little bit about that because i thought that was really fascinating
1: yeah fascinating and one of the darkest stories in in the book mm, i mean yes it is it, it is it was an interestingly hard book to write partially because some of the history of race science is so absurd that it actually became quite funny. And then other parts are the worst atrocities that humans have have, have ever enacted. The 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 Rwandan genocide was a race war um whose origins were colonialization initially by Germans and then subsequently by Belgians, who uh, th- these are tribal groups, and they have slightly different ancestries. They have slightly different behaviours. Uh, the Tutsi tend to be pastoralists. They have, on average, slightly paler skin than the Hutu. But until the until the Germans were there, they, they, they were two tribes, one of several, in what we now call Rwanda, who got on fine. What happens during the nineteenth century and the early twentieth century is that the, for various reasons, the the Germans and subsequently the, the Belgian colonists were more interested in trading with the Tutsi than the Hutu. And with that, including using their paler skin and their ability to drink milk, which is a European characteristic primarily, but also because the Tutsi were pastoralists, they asserted a, an ancestry which is fiction, fiction called the Hamites, the Sons of Ham, who, according to a passage in the Talmud, were cursed with blackness. All right. So these are. It's, this is a fictional anthropological grouping of Israelites cursed with blackness who subsequently become the Tutsi. Now, this is made up. This is a made-up story. But what happens during those years at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century as the Belgians take over is this becomes much more formalized. And in 1931, the Belgians introduce ethnic identity cards which say Hutu or Tutsi. Uh, In the 50s, the Belgians eventually clear off. And what they're left with is ethnic groups who have bought into this lie. They've bought into this ethnicity and tribal divides in a way which fuels conflict. The Belgians install the Tutsi, In the, the there's a violent revolution, there's low-level civil war for the rest of the 20th century, which escalates into, into the 1990s, into the genocide that happened during, I mean, this is in our lifetime, right? This, this is hundreds of thousands of people murdered in a very short space of time. Uh, it's the first time the UN recognized rape as a weapon of war. Um, an est- some estimates are ten thousand babies born as a result of mass rape. All of it is predicated on the on driving a fictional divide between people who are slightly different to each other, for no other reason than to reinforce the hegemony of the colonial rulers, who had subsequently buggered off. By the time that this is this is all turning into one of the worst atrocities of the twentieth century. So it's it's those sorts of... We're in this weird era where people get angry if, if we think about empire critically or honestly because we should be proud of our imperial past. I, I feel neutral about our imperial past. It was stuff that happened which has staggeringly awful consequences for millions of people all over the world. I don't know whether apologizing for it is right, but acknowledging it is definitely right and denying it is is ahistorical um, and deceptive.
0: I want to move on to talk about genetics. It's a, a relatively modern scientific field. So, of course, scientists, as we've talked about with Linnaeus and, and others and philosophers, had an awful lot to say about race for hundreds of years. Um, and much of it, as we've discussed, was quite racist. And a lot of it um, didn't really make any scientific sense. So when the early geneticists actually started looking at things, did they buck this trend? Were they less racist?
1: <laughs> yeah, um, sort of. Uh, it, the process in the late 19th century as as science is developing, as we're getting better at doing science, um, I think the move is generally one of progress towards better science, which also is by proxy towards a better understanding of human evolution, human diversity. Uh, one of the early examples is the Hirschfeld brothers, mm. who in the 1990s, uh, 1990s um, devised the ABO blood system. And they did this by looking at different ethnic groups within, within soldiers uh, during and after the First World War. And, and this, is the, this is really the first time they establish the concept of a gene distributed differently amongst different people. But what they saw was really interesting that, that actually they saw the blood groups A, B, and O not segregating by racial groups, but by little pockets all over the world, which were populations, but not like Africans or even Southern Africans or East Asians or whatever, but seeing that certain populations had A's and some had, had B's. So they, they speculated that there were ancestrally two races that had subsequently mixed. Now, we now know in the 21st century that actually the ABO system exists in macaques and predates humans by millions of years. But this was the first step towards actually seeing that genes don't segregate by race. Now, as we progress through the 20th century, we get more and more molecular. We understand more about genetics. And and in the early 2000s, we begin to look all over the world at thousands of people. And you begin to see what we call clustering. So if you look at markers in the genome bits of dna which we think are in, informative for understanding ancestry uh you if, if you if you look all over the world you do begin to see sort of cluster clusters mm. which appear superficially to recapitulate linnaeus or blumenbach or these 19th century guys because you see one cluster in africa and you see a slightly different cluster in europe and a different cluster in east asia and and so on. And so the races put their hands up and said, hey, we were right all along. There are five different types of humans. No. And this is where it gets really complicated because that's not what the genetics says. Because if you, if you, set, the, if you set that particular piece of software at five, it gives you five clusters, and they happen to correspond to these large landmasses. Yeah. If you set it to six, the sixth separate race according to exactly the same methodology is the Kalasha who are a group of about 4,000 people in a very remote village uh, in the Himalayas, in northern Pakistan. And not even the most ardent racist would call them a race. If you set it for two, it's Africans and everyone else in the world. So it's this. this is where I get into the domain of where science in the 21st century is being misused or misunderstood or misinterpreted to try and recapitulate ideas of race. It's pretty much the same thing that was happening in the 17th century. It's just we're now doing with with genetics this stuff is hard i won't deny this it's really really hard to understand population genetics and i have to rely on people cleverer than me to 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 understand these ideas well, what i think is really happening is that with because of social media and the, the ability to spread ideas far and wide we're seeing ideas which within genetics we sort of ruled out many years ago, becoming popular again because they can be distributed very widely.
0: Yes, and so we're in a situation where actually, as you say, social media is able to disseminate this kind of information, which, you know, you've entitled your book How to Argue with a Racist. Um, when you hear that kind of information being widely discussed and often in forum that are actually quite difficult for most people to access because they would just feel too uncomfortable to be there... What is your suggestion? What do you think that people should do? How do we tackle this as a society?
1: Yeah, well, I, the self-serving answer is read the book. But um, more generally, um, I think that, uh, you know, you never, you're never going to persuade an ardent white supremacist or a neo-Nazi to change their views by presenting them with, a, with some scientific arguments. Sure. These are ideologically driven positions. And, you know, the old Swiftian maxim that you can't reason someone out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. So... In some ways, those guys are soft targets because reason and scientific rationale is not the core of their beliefs. I am interested in addressing stereotypes and myths that are held and perpetuated with modern science that are held by people who aren't overt racists, well-intentioned, normal people who repeat or think they have a grasp of some aspects of historical racial ideologies or racial stereotypes, a lot to do with sport or intelligence Mm. that require quite complex tools to, to unpick why they're not correct. And often these are positive attributes. So so many times people will say to me, well, I don't know, like African-Americans are biologically better at sprinting. Yeah. Good at sport. Yeah. Right. So this is one that I get a lot Mm -hmm. and it's really interesting. I love, I love sport and I love thinking about this as an idea um, and there are various suggested reasons why this might be the case. Mm-hmm. The data set that most people are working on is the fact that there hasn't been a white man in the 100 meters final since Alan Wells in 1980. And that was a year that the Americans boycotted because it was in Moscow. Right. That was the last time the 100 meter sprint was the f- the winner was uh, less than uh, more than 10 seconds. Mm-hmm since then there have been 58 runners in the final of the olympics and all of them have been of recent african descent and 53 of them have been from african american caribbean or, or canadian descent so you go that's your data set well that's pretty compelling right that, that's that that looks to me like i um, not to me but uh, that you can say that that looks like uh that there is a there is a a, a biological reason underwriting that and some of the reasons that have been suggested and suggested by Michael Johnson who my my favourite track and field athlete of all time he suggested in a documentary for the BBC 2012 before the Olympics he said something like um, all my life I thought it was my hard work and grit that got me to this position but now I understand by seeing my, my roots from West Africa before enslavement that there is something in us that was bred in during slavery uh which makes us better an athletic gene now i look at that and think okay well that is testable right what Mm -hmm. you've just said then is a testable hypothesis and you're in my domain here and the fact that michael johnson said it meant i want you know i want to get him get involved in this because he's amazing and so the answer is well the, the first thing is we don't see any evidence of selection natural selection in african americans since they have since they were, were taken from their homelands in Africa anyway. So the first thing is we just don't see any evolution that points in that direction whatsoever. Now, that should be enough. But then there's more prosaic arguments, which I think are equally or maybe more persuasive. If African-Americans via slavery had evolved better biological skills at explosive sports, and that is why we see them in the 100 meters finals, Why don't we see them in short form swimming? Do you know how many African-Americans have swum in the Olympics? Yeah, very few, vanishingly few. It's two in the history of Mm -hmm. the Olympics. Mm -hmm. But isn't
0: this another racial stereotype that uh, African-Americans or Africans have got denser bones? Yeah, uh, yes.
1: And uh, this is a common, I hear this a lot, common misconception. There there is some evidence that uh, people of African descent and and African-Americans do have a different, maybe denser bone structure which relates to different levels of osteoporosis whether or not that is true which it may be the marginal gains from being the argument like they're gonna
0: sink right well that is exactly
1: (laughs) what is said um, that it it has been said in sports programs it's been said by coaches the most tragic thing about it is it's been said to me by black friends and it's a common myth within people of African descent now it is not true when Uh, Swim USA, which is the the national swimming body, did their largest analysis of why 70% of African-Americans don't swim, which is a huge number. Mm. The factors were socioeconomic because swim schools tend to be after school, so they cost money. After segregation ended in 64, most new swimming pools were built in richer areas. So little access uh, to black families um no role models that 's a yes. big factor in sports. The fact that there have only been two African Americans and actually they're only in the last five years anyway there are no role models in swimming um but the biggest one and this it seems so crazy to even have to say this the single biggest correlation between being able to swim is being taught how to swim if you teach people how to swim they know how to swim there if you imagine that there's some buoyancy factor, which is biological, you've lost the argument already. And it, it, you know, we sort of joke about this. It actually makes, I think it's quite funny and it actually makes me slightly angry because this kind of structural racism is literally lethal. Mm -hmm. The death rate from drowning in African American children between the age of five and 14 is three times higher than it is for, for white children. And so that the, the way you stop that is you teach people how to swim. The notion that there is a biological buoyancy factor in there is an irrelevance to what is actually lethal to black children. Wow.
0: I want to talk to you about um, genetic ancestry tests. They're really easy to find on the internet. They have become really popular. And they do feed many people's hunger to know more about their identity and their belonging.
1: What's your opinion of them? I know you're quite critical about them. Why is that? Yes, I think being quite critical is a fair assessment of, <laughs> of what I think of them I'm not in the business of telling people how to spend their money I'm in the business about of of explaining how these things work mm. and they do as you say appeal to our narcissism our sense of ancestry our sense of belonging those very very human condition conditions um now I don't think they necessarily answer those questions because Genetics doesn't really work that way. What what you're actually doing is when you you spit in the tube, you send it off, you get a map back which says, you know, you're 20% Irish and you're 20% German or 10% Ashkenazi Jew or, you know, whatever it says. And they give you a breakdown like that. The first thing to say is that there is no way of identifying ancestry using genetics. That, that, That doesn't exist as a scientific method. What they're actually doing is telling you where... DNA like your own can be found in people around the world today. And we infer ancestry that if you've got, if 10% of your DNA looks very similar to people who identify as Ashkenazi Jews, then it's reasonable to assume that that part of your DNA came from ancestors who are Ashkenazi Jews. So there's an inference involved in that. It, it is important to say it isn't possible to be 10% German, right, or 10% Greek. That isn't how like citizenship works so and this is an anti-racist sentiment i mean this is people saying you know we're a happy mix actually my ancestry revealed that i got loads more international ancestors than i previously thought but it isn't possible to be 50 percent something and or 20 percent something else so in really crude terms i get emails every week from uh, europeans mostly british people who want to discover that they have viking ancestors now Everyone has Viking ancestors. I mean, literally everyone has Viking ancestors. I can look at you and say, you've got Viking ancestors. And I know you're, you're, you're blonde and, and, and have uh, blue eyes. And so that's associated being further north and, and towards Sweden. Any European has, has Viking ancestors, including people down in Turkey or North Africa. Um, and the reason for this is that there's a, something we get wrong about how our family trees work is that we imagine that we have two parents and four grandparents and eight grand- great parents, and, and our trees spread out like t- trees. Mm. That's why we call them family trees. Yeah. Yeah. The problem with that is if you keep doubling the number of ancestors that you have every generation back, by the time you get to, well, let's say, well, about 500 years ago, then you'll have more than a million ancestors on your family tree, which is a lot of people. But if you keep going, by the time you get 1,000 years back so the year, so let's say the, the 10th century, you have about a trillion ancestors on your family tree. Way, way, way more than the number of people that existed.
0: Have ever existed.
1: <laughs> yeah. So that can't be right. Yeah. But the numbers have to be right because everyone has two parents. But we're missing the answer to this obvious conundrum, which is that our family trees branch out from us and then they collapse in on themselves. So you have a trillion positions on your family tree but they're occupied by the same people over and over again the further back through time you go. And there's a pretty tricky concept, which I love, and I've said it a thousand times in lectures, and every time I say it, I get confused. And so pity the poor audiences that have to listen to this drivel. But there's a concept in genetics called the isopoint. I was
0: going to ask you about the isopoint because I thought it was absolutely fascinating. It's this amazing. This is the idea that there's just one person you, you explain it because you okay you, yeah.
1: so so i'll do the most common recent ancestor first okay. so the mrca the most recent common ancestor is a an important concept in evolution and it is the person the single individual who can link to two individuals further down down the line so the most recent common ancestor of two cousins is a grandparent yeah Now, when we look at the maths and the genetics of a whole population, say Europe, for example, the most recent common ancestor comes out at about 600 years ago. So that means that if we could draw a family tree, a perfect family tree for every European, one branch, a minimum of one branch from every single European would flow through one individual about 600 years ago. And we estimate that person lived in Germany for for different reasons. So that's the most recent common ancestor. And that indicates how closely matted our family trees become. But then something really weird and even more mathematically interesting happens back through time after the most recent common ancestor, which is that all our branches of our family trees don't just cross through one individual, they cross through multiple individuals, and the same person will have branches which cross multiple times through many individuals. And as you keep going back through time, you get to this point, which we call the isopoint, which is the time at which all branches of everyone's family tree crosses through all individuals alive at that time. Wow. Yeah, 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 it's pretty hard. Another way of phrasing it is to say, if you're alive at the genetic isopoint, then you are the ancestor of everyone alive today, or no one alive today. Which means because your family tree is petered out. Yeah so what that means uh, uh, go on uh, Go on. So how, how far back are we talking well the uh, European genetic ice point is a thousand years ago which is why which doesn't but, feel that long no it's Charlemagne yeah it's, well it's actually after Charlemagne the, yeah. reason, the reason I use Charlemagne as an example is because Richard Branson and Christopher Lee and loads of people like to do their family trees and they go hey we've got Charlemagne in our family tree <laughs> 40 generations and the reason we have Charlemagne is because he's royalty so we yeah. know his family tree yes we know his descendants but the fact that The fact that Richard Branson is descended from Charlemagne literally means that so are you, and so am I, and so is everyone in this room, and almost everyone who's watching this as well. If it's true for one person, it is literally true for everyone. Now the point about the Vikings is, the Vikings come before Charlemagne. So if everyone in Europe is descended from Charlemagne, it also means Everyone in Europe is descended from Vikings. Now, that's just Europe. When we look at the globalizer point, which is the population of the world from whom everyone alive today is descended, it comes out as the 14th century BC, so about 3,500 years ago, which is nuts, but true.
0: It's, it's mind-blowing. <laughs> it is. But actually, I think it probably makes us you know, when you're looking at then, you know, the constructs of racism today, you think, well, actually, we really have got an awful lot more in common than divides us.
1: They are absurd. Mm. It, 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 it is a key idea in one of the, the sort of central thesis of the book is you, you can be a racist, but you can't have my tools as a scientist to defend your position. And if you are a racist, I've got a much, much smarter set of friends than you do.
0: So let's talk then about ideas that uh, that are swirling around currently. We've I know you've spent the time trawling through um online neo-Nazi chat rooms as you say this book um has got some rather dark parts in it as well. Um and looked at how they misrepresent scientific academic papers and how we can combat that, right? That's on that's on one side and you talked about how it's very difficult to combat somebody who is clearly a racist and maybe not that important because they're, if you're if you 're a white supremacist you 're probably someone who 's not going to come in contact with many m- many of the rest of society. There is another pernicious racial purity that we 're more familiar with, and this is this kind of geographical idea that this land is our land. Americans heard it last year from their President Donald Trump when he suggested um, that if four elected u s congress women didn 't like the u s they could go back home and um, Not surprisingly, they were women of color. Um, obviously, when we look at his ancestry, he's what German, Scottish, whatever. But it is still being used. This idea of no matter how much, you know, I'm fascinated to hear you talk about skin colour and how kind of irrelevant it is in terms of our genetics, and yet it's still being used day in day out, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, there are different types of racism, and it's really difficult to understand where the concept of indigeneity comes from. So, those of those four congresswomen Three of them were born in the United States. I, I sat in a bar in a, in America last year, having a nice conversation with some. Uh, one was a policeman, and one was a prison guard. It was in rural America, and I, I when I tour, I like to talk to locals just to just to talk to them. And they were talk, talking about Alexandria Cortez, who who is 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 one one of those politicians. Now, she was born in the Bronx. Uh, her father was Puerto Rican. Which is America, and so there isn't a way in which her ancestry is not 100% American by birth. But she was one of them. Trump said, "Go back to where you come come from." Did he mean the Bronx or Queens? Or uh, it's 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 not quite clear the logic behind that sentence. Maybe asking. That particular man to apply logic to his, his uh, effluence is asking a bit much. But in terms of the indigeneity of, of like, you know these lands of, of British lands, there is a, a great misunderstanding of, of migration, the permanence of migration, the continuous migration around a world, especially because we're an island, which has been continuous for the last, well, about 900,000 years. I understand that people have a legitimate concern about migration in the modern era but when it becomes a bigoted or racialized sentiment the background to defending that you know england for the english mm. what well, i don't know what that means when they say to me go back to where you came from i'm from i'm from suffolk right i mean like i i do go back to ipswich sometimes i don't really understand what the you know what 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 they're asking well, I do. They're racists. But I think that, again, that that sort of logical inconsistency, and we don't ask our racists to be logically consistent, that gives us tools to fight against them. And I think that's that's you know another set of tools that I think it's useful to have in your toolkit so you can say, what do you mean the indigenous people of Great Britain? Do you mean the Beaker folk? Or do you mean the Druids that came before them? Or do you mean... The cheddar man who was 10,000 years ago, who had a skin tone which was much more like a sub Saharan African today, but had blue eyes as well. I mean, the fact that there were dark skinned people in Europe and Britain five, 10,000 years ago is scientifically uncontroversial. But every time we publish a paper which says something like that, man, they lose their minds. <laughs> which I can't deny, I find quite amusing.
0: It's interesting. Sometimes what, you know, you highlight in the book as racism, we perhaps don't see on the surface. I'm thinking about, you know, Raheem Sterling in the last couple of years has called out newspapers for using different language when referring to young black footballers than referring to young white footballers. Of course, as soon as you read it, yeah. you realise that it exists. But one might not have realized before. He argues that it helps to fuel racism. Just tell me a little bit about what that survey about hundreds of media reports about elite sporting success reveals yeah
1: yeah this is so powerful and again it's useful because we think about sports sports is a good Mm. it's it's an interesting way of looking at people of of different ethnicities people from a different from around the world again at the top of their abilities And, and a lot of myths are drawn from that but the the thing you're referring to which i find enormously powerful was an assessment of several thousand comments in the media about elite athletes, various different sports over uh, several years. And in, in general, the majority of comments when referring to people of re- recent African uh, descent, African-Americans particularly, the comments about elite athletes from those demographics tended to say things that were physical they tended to refer to innate abilities or physicality whereas the same proportion of comments about white athletes tended to focus on their industriousness and their intelligence now when you look at them when you look at those statistics so starkly the, the what emerges from that is that this is so baked into our culture it is it, we you don't even notice this until these sorts of stats come out and again it relates to the history it relates to linnaeus and voltaire and those guys who said these things explicitly who said that black people are lazy but strong or said that um indians or uh, chinese or um east Asians as we now call that those you know several billion people mm-hmm. are devious uh and unoriginal but hard working now these occur, these descriptions first occur at the same time that these taxonomies are first being applied, where primarily it's skin colour. Dark skin, lazy.
0: Yeah, and yet, I mean, you I noticed you said in the book that the inheritance of intelligence is probably the most controversial topic in the whole of science. And you pick up on some of these, this idea that maybe East... Asian students are naturally better at maths which is something that we that is gets talked about a lot today or the idea that Jewish people are innately good with money, perhaps that is considered more of a racist trope um, but these are surely areas that need to be challenged, what are the tools that we
1: have to do that? Right, well I think that a key idea in this is that you, you, I, you ha- I'm a scientist and so I, I ha- my starting point is data and looking at the data for for simple questions like you know to, to which the answer is east asians are better at maths or or yeah. um you know one one statistic that i put in the book that is is factually correct is that in the sciences the number of nobel prizes won by jewish people ashkenazi jewish people is 144 so far currently and the number wa- number one by black people is zero now as a number as a stat that's pretty stark um and the point that I make is that this should be the beginning of inquiry, not the conclusion. And this, this I think, is the difference between a scientist and a racist or a casually casually racist person, because at that point, you look at it and think, well, why is that? That isn't an answer. If that data is correct, then that is a starting point for addressing something which is really significant. And the racialized answer is that there is something biological, something innate which explains those discrepancies in in, in cognitive abilities. But there's some pretty complex explanation as to why. I don't think any of the science reinforces that at all. And again, those sorts of discrepancies are much more readily and much more easily explained by cultural differences rather than biological differences. There are no effective biological differences that we have identified so far and I say so far because we're we're looking, but it's not like we're looking for a big revelation. But there are no biological differences between groups of people which can account for the attainment gaps that we do see between population differences. You know, we have to acknowledge as well, as we've talked about a lot, black isn't a meaningful biological Mm -hmm. concept. So when you say black boys in England do worse at school than white boys which is also a statistically correct thing to say you're not actually talking about biological distinctions there at all because this is the black boys is not a coherent genetic grouping so as i say you know better explanations are cultural and ingrained structural racism rather than some kind of genetic factor so you know genetics
0: as a science is is quite young it is moving very quickly Looking at the future of genetics, will it tell us more? Will it give us more weapons to look at racism? Will it give us more ways to look at this? Or do you think that that particular avenue is done?
1: Genetics will never be done. Um, I don't just say that because I need to keep working. But the genome is the most rich data set we've ever come across. Right, There is infinite information in our genomes. We think that Every single genome that has ever existed in humans is unique, and that includes identical twins, and it also will be unique for the entire duration of the human species. So that's a lot of data to play around with. Within that, we will find lots of explanations or clues to why people are different, why people are similar, the history of our species, the evolution of our species, more importantly from from a... Uh, health point of view, why some people get some diseases and others don't, how to create drugs that treat people at a personalized level, and so on. So genetics is, we're, we're okay. Um, we're we're going to be all right as a, as a scientific field for a while to come. I don't think that we're going to find any huge revelations about human diversity, human variants, which recapitulate any of the ideas of race that we're talking about now that go back through the last four or five centuries of pseudoscientific racism. The clues just aren't there and the more we look and the harder we look they still don't appear. Now I'm a scientist I have to wait for the results we speculate about the future science it should be predictive that's that's what science does I would be incredibly surprised if what that statement I just made changes significantly at any point in the future
0: and can enhanced knowledge about genetics actually help us fight racism
1: I think in in I think knowledge is always a good thing there's an alternative reality where we're having this conversation where genetics has demonstrated the biological fact of race, and you're asking me that question and I'm to which the answer is. Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's it's a fiction. It's an alternative reality. One of the key things that's in the book is is that it's in the conclusion. So spoiler alert. Racism isn't wrong because it's based on a scientifically specious idea. Racism is wrong because it's an affront to human dignity. And what I'm trying to do here is say, well, yeah, I'm belligerent and pugnacious and I'm up for a fight, but what I'm saying is you can't have my tools because they don't say that race is real. So if if you're going to be a racist, then I've got, well, like I said, I've I got my pals with me and you've got yours. So bring it.
0: Adam, thank you very much indeed. Adam Rutherford. Fascinating chat. Thank, thank you. you. Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.